Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today, I am joined by golf course architect Andy Staples. Andy is a young, up-and-coming architect who has designed courses such as Meadowbrook Country Club, Sand Hollow, and Rockwind Community Links. Our discussion jumps right into a talk on municipal golf, or as Andy likes to call it, community golf. And then we divulge into his renovation of Meadowbrook, Willie Park Jr., and much more. Thanks for all the ongoing support and for tuning in. And if you haven't yet, please rate and review the podcast in iTunes and subscribe if you don't already. Here's Andy Staples. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. How did I get roped into Muni Golf? Yeah. I See. love it. Well, I would tell you that the Muni the Muni sector in our business was where a lot of the blue collar architects would play for a lot of years, I think maybe still today. And you know, we didn't get the calls from the top clubs when I first got in the business. So I I ended up seeing a lot of that side. So I I responded to a lot of RFPs, you know, really as long as I've been in the business. And so it was somewhat natural to me, but it was always known as this, you know, faction of the business that you're like, well, one day we might graduate and not have to do this. And, and then the recession hit and the Muni sector was hit as hard as anybody. And, and I, it felt like it was something that was, that was real to me and, and understood. And, and, and then on top of that, it just felt, you know, innovation in golf is, not a word you hear a lot of, maybe in the equipment side, but not on the development side. And so I felt like there was some room for innovation. And I kind of, I didn't like the word municipal. And I thought community was a lot better word. And I said, you know what, I think this is, this is a place for innovation and a place to make a mark. And I thought it was also a place that a lot of my competitors weren't, it was a pond that they weren't fishing in. And, and uh, so I, I went full bore and, Lo and behold, I, I find myself being pretty successful in front of a large group and comfortable in front of a large group and, and been able to kind of bring people onto the side of golf. And, and it just has been something that I've stuck with. And I think it, I'm passionate about it. And I think it's the value of a golf course in a community is not something that is really well thought of. And I think we should be thinking more of it as a value. And it's been kind of a mission of mine to stick with it. That's kind of what I, I see too, is like something that fascinates me is how many of my podcast guests grew up playing municipal golf, like it, and how many of the people that get into the golf industry are grew up playing muni golf. And it, it I mean, it's so vital. Like I, I, I grew up playing muni golf, like without muni golf, you, you know, the, if you want to talk about growing the game, like if you didn't, if, if muni golf keeps closing and on its pace that it is now, like you're not going to have a game without it. Yeah. 
I think if you go back to the history of why municipal golf even started, go back to, you know, Van Cortland golf course, the first municipally owned golf course in the country. It was, it was a place for, you know, the growing middle class that had some expendable income that, that couldn't afford to join a private club. They, they went down to the local municipal golf course. So I think it's, you know, people don't realize that the reason why golf is the way that it is and the way that it was able to expand to the heights that it got expanded to was because of municipal golf, or at least in part because of municipal golf. Yeah, I was the same way. I, I grew up at a, a plan at a place called Wanaki uh, in, in outside of Milwaukee in in Wisconsin. Wanaki Golf Course. It was a county, Waukesha County Golf Course. And I would meet my buddies down there after school and and we we play on the weekends. It was the same thing, you know, four dollars or five dollars for somebody under sixteen, and you know, it was easy for the parents to drop us all off. So it was, yeah. I think municipal golf means a lot to a lot of golfers, and I think, uh, you know, in today's world, we're, we're municipal golf is taking such a kind of a such a back back seat and kind of a getting abused and in, in the media whether or not municipal municipalities should be in the golf business and. And I contend that it should. Yeah, I I agree. I I don't know. I, it, it frustrates me because those courses were built kind of seemingly all at like a really bad time. So they, you know, for the most part, a municipal golf course is like the least innovative golf course that you'll see. It's, you know, they're pretty cookie cutter and pretty unimaginative. And I think if they at the time when they were built golf was so exclusive and and they're missing the inclusive nature of a of a community course. Well yeah, a lot of those a lot of those courses are integrated into the fabric of the county or city park system. So I, I think it was just kind of part and parcel. You you'd have open space, you'd have trails, you'd have camping, you'd have you'd have maybe a, a lake or something and then you have a golf course. So it's the inclusivity of golf and the, com- the community nature of golf has, has been there. And I think, I, I think I, I'm one to believe that the community golf is at the very beginning of a, a complete revitalization. And I don't, I'm not equating that with all kinds of people playing golf, but, but the golf course, uh, municipal golf course industry, I think is just prime for a pivot and there's just too many of them out there. And there's too many success stories and too many good models that are being followed today that I think it's just at the beginning of, of, of a new awareness of, of, of golf, uh, what I like to call community golf. I'd rather not call it municipal golf anymore because I think we all think of that as a negative term because you can have a great, you know, really interesting strategic golf course and, and turns people through and maintain for a reasonable budget, reasonable budget. It seems like that a better more well-designed golf course would be way more beneficial for a community because you'd be able to get people around it faster. They'd have more fun and it'd be more beginner friendly while it'd be way more interesting for an expert player. Yeah. I think that's what business right now is what, what exactly is the right balance of, of strategy and, and heroic design. And some might call it, you know, we went through a, period of penal design balancing the right level of challenge with with just letting people have fun and play the game and i i think that you know when i was brought to the game i i actually learned on a a bill langford golf course a langford moreau golf course west bend country club a little blue collar club out suburbs of milwaukee and and i remember hitting into these big huge grass features 
I was, I think I started at seven, eight, seven, eight years old. And by the time I was 10, I still couldn't get out of these things. I would, I would ricochet off the grass faces. And I remember thinking, gosh, I better practice. I better get better at this. This is, this isn't an easy game. And so I think there's a, there's a part of that, that, that we all as golfers like the challenge, but I think that there's ways, I think we went overboard. I think there's a, there's a way to balance the challenge and the strategy and the interest uh, to, to truly kind of defend the, the course against a better player, but let people play through it in a reasonable amount of time. So you, definitely an opportunity. You grew up playing golf and, and did you play in high school? Yeah, I played in high school. Uh, I was on the high school team. I was on the state championship team. Actually, I guess maybe claim to fame. I played with Mark Wilson, the tour pro. He and I were, he was a freshman. I was a senior. We, we won state. And uh, I actually had, thoughts of trying to play golf in college one day and i realized that probably wasn't going to happen i got in front of that kind of competition and realized that that that, that's when you get separated right i had a better chance of drawing pictures of a golf course one day as opposed to playing them for a living so you went to school and you you studied you wanted to be a golf course architect from you know the day you stepped into school yeah so when i I was practicing every day. I mean, I got the bug when I was, when I was a kid through high school and my, my dad saw the, the level of, of, of interest. And I actually started building my own golf course out of a sand beach in Northern Wisconsin. And, and my, my dad saw me tending to it every weekend. And he said, you know, you know, son, that people design golf courses for a living. And I said, that was the time, I think it was around 12. I was like, that just blew my mind. I had no idea that that was even possible. I thought golf courses just appeared. And and at that point I said, well, how do I do that? And of course my dad said, I, I don't know. And so he did some calling around and, and told me that I should go study. You know, the, the, the idea at the time was to go study landscape architecture in school. And so I said, right then I'm going to go to school, to study landscape architecture. So as soon as I got into school, you know, everybody was trying to, in my department of building buildings or designing parks or, you know, working in urban planning and I was the lone golf course guy, you know, at, at the university of Arkansas is where I went. So that was a team that I tried to walk on the golf team, but realized that, you know, the, the coach at the time said, he asked me what I was studying. And I said, I'm studying landscape architecture. I want to be a golf course architect when I grow up. He says, well, you realize that you either play golf or study architecture. You don't do both here. I'm like, okay. Well, that's a pretty clear, <laughs> that's an easy decision for me. So I yeah, thought, I, I, thought I they knew were... about 12 years old that, that there was such a thing and that that's what I wanted to do. That's, I feel very fortunate for that. That's neat. It's, I always think back to my childhood and I remember there was a Microsoft uh, game, golf game that you could design your own golf course. And I, I would do that all the time. And, and, uh, and then my buddy and I would play wiffle ball in our, in our street, in, in our front yards. And we'd, you know, essentially design golf holes in our own way, playing from tree to tree. It's amazing the imagination of a, of a kid. I, I bet your your philosophies of golf course design have changed a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, of course, did the same thing, hitting off trees. And, you know, I had a sand green. So this was a, I had a little cup in my little sand green. But, yeah, I remember the first time, you know, this Wanaki, this county course I was telling you about, had a bunch of hanging lakes. So you would go up over a ridge. And you'd hit it over the top of the ridge, and then you'd come to the top and realize there was a pond there. You're like, shoot, there's a pond. I just hit it in the water. Blind I had water. No idea. I couldn't see it. It was a blind <laughs> lake, right? And so me as a, a young golfer, well, I should have known that there was a lake. I should have been able to see through that ridge. Well, the first time I realized that somebody actually placed the lake there, 
as a designer, I was, it started that, you know, things started to go off in my mind, like, why in the world would you put it there? Then of course, now you're blaming the designer and not, not your own game, of course, but yeah, the, it's certainly changed and evolved as you educate yourself through the business and through the, through, through time for sure. So after, uh, you get out of school, where'd you go work, uh, right off the, how'd you get kind of into the architecture industry? I imagine it, it being somebody that came out in the nineties, it was booming. Yeah. So yeah, I, I started working, I had a mentor, uh, through school. We did a, as part of my, my thesis, I did a d- design of a golf course on top of a landfill. And I worked with a guy named Jerry Slack out of Tulsa, which was a, he's more of a land planner. He was a golf course architect. Uh, in his own right, but he was the one that said, if you really want to start in this business, go work in construction. So this was probably in 90, 1993, 94. And so my first, my first job was really working with Wadsworth Golf Construction. I started up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and then down to Texas. And so really my entree to the business was, was through the construction world. And then Jerry, once he saw that I had kind of followed his, kind of his path, or his preferred path, he, he hired me to become a draftsman. And so I, I was, I was drawing, my first job was drawing plans by hand. It was before we had CAD or any type of computer. I remember helping him through the first computer we bought <laughs> uh, to try to get CAD in the, in the office. But uh, so that was in Tulsa. That's how I kind of broke in the business. So I, I like to say that I, I, I wouldn't have gotten that job had I not started on the, on the construction side. That makes sense. I mean, it, back then construction was like the thing. I mean, there was a golf course a day that that everybody was saying that America needed to build to keep up with the pace of the growing game. That's right. The NGF said golf course a day and we we tried. We definitely tried. It, For a while we were doing what five one year we did 500 golf courses in a year. I mean, it goes back to the you know, current state, everybody associates golf courses closing with bad, but, you know, and, and Muni's closing with bad, but I think part of it is just a, a market normalizing to what it should be. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I, you know, the, the idea that we were building that kind of, that kind of quantity over that short a period of time is, is really now looking back on it, pretty mind blowing that, that that even was, was possible. So I yeah I'm I'm a firm believer. It's one of the, my messages was I t- as I talked to to the municipal sector that that I talked to is that, you know what closing your golf course is is a real is a real option. So let's let's talk about that for a second. You know before we even go any further about improving your course, let's talk about is there support for the course and whether it should stay open. So I I'm I'm one that certainly is not a not against any closures because there's a reason for why those those courses aren't making it. Yeah, I agree. I think there's, there's courses that should close and there's courses that shouldn't close. And I think, you know, there needs to be some sort of, at some point in the near future, some sort of initiative from the USGA to, you know, use some of their money to support the ones that really shouldn't close. Um, and, and, and that's a, that's what bugs me is like some of these, like you're familiar with Detroit area, but like that Rackham course, that was on yep. the brink of closing. Like that's a course that, you know, ton of history, Donald Ross design. Um, it's, it's tied very closely to the city. That's a, that's a course that shouldn't close. Um, it might need to be a little bit different of a concept than it is currently and 
have a little bit forward thinking concepts, but that's a golf course that, that should be helped and subsidized from golf's governing body. Do you, I mean, what do you, what do you think about the USGA and, and mini golf? Community well, golf. Community golf, right? Phrase. So what do I think? Do I think the USGA should be the one to step up into that? I, I think at the, I don't think we're there at that point. I, I don't know that the municipal sector would, is positioned right to be able to, to take those kind of funds. It's like, you know, the stimulus dollars just a couple of years ago, right? So, you know, I, I understand trying to kickstart an industry and, and finding maybe some showcase properties that, that make some sense. And, and to be honest, I mean, that the way they've showcased it is around their open championship. That's, that's been the way, you know, they've brought it to the public sector. They've, they, they brought the, you know, the U S open, you know, rotation or, or courses to try to get, you know, the golf under a, a, a certain, you know, message that it's open to the public. But, you know, in terms of putting money towards municipalities, you, know, you talk about Rackham. I mean, you've got some other issues there with Rackham that, that, you know, and it's not necessarily unique to the city of Detroit. It's unique to just this idea that the the backing and the, the, the ability to support public golf, there's not enough people at the highest levels of their government that, that support golf. And so I think, Unproperly support, and you're and you, the city has the ability more times than not to support and subsidize golf. It's just they're choosing not to because of the the messaging that's happening about the negativity towards golf. But when you start thinking about all the people that actually have a chance to visit a golf course, and that's one of the, my messages to the, to my community golf message is that it needs to expand the user group so that it's not just about the ten percent to play golf, that it's more about walking trails and outdoor activities and and you know, any type of use, you know, it's not necessarily a clubhouse anymore. It's more of a community building. You know, if you start to, to pivot on those types of messaging messages, I think the USGA's role can help support that. But I think if we look to them to try to save municipal golf, I, I, I don't know that I agree with that. But there's certainly a powerful message there that needs to be in support of municipal golf. So getting into your community golf um, and on your website, you've got just – great resources, a white paper and different things about, you know, the way your kind of philosophy on what community golf should be. And I think what you said about inclusive is, is such a big deal. Um, you know, where it, it, it's almost more of a model that you would see in, in England and Scotland and Ireland than what the traditional community or municipal community golf is in America. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's funny how many people, when I get in front of the municipal stakeholders and tell them about the old course at St. Andrews and the fact that it closes down on Sunday and becomes a, a park, people can walk across the entire you know golf course and property. They're they're blown away. They're like, oh, I can't believe that. You know, we love walking on golf courses. We should consider that, right? And so, you know, it's funny how when you go to when you go throughout the world, you know, I studied, I studied in Denmark for a semester and I actually, I, I actually worked or the study focus was on urban planning, but we had a chance to go out to all kinds of park plans and we studied throughout Scandinavia, including Stockholm and Sweden. And there was a, I have a specific, cause it was part of my study that there was a specific park property called Woodland Cemetery. It was this broad open space. It wasn't a golf course. It was a cemetery, but it, it basically felt like a golf course. And you would go through a series of, of trails and transitions from space to space. There was there was chapels. There was auditoriums. There were 
crematoriums. There was open space to, to be outside in nature. And I think when you, people are drawn to that kind of experience. And for us as golfers, we happen to do that. We actually experience an open space with a, with a stick and a ball in our, (laughs) in our, in our possession. And so to me, when you just start to think about the innate characteristics of being outside and, and playing sport, you know, golf, golf falls right in line with all of those things I think that we are drawn to. And, you know, so now it just tells me it's a messaging issue. It's, it's how are we presenting it? And we should be presenting it not necessarily across the board. I understand that, you know, golf has many different faces, but, but from these particular community golf courses, they need to be presented and the messaging needs to be proper and needs to start from the very beginning, uh, the very top of, of government. And so I think, I think we just need to, we have a, we have a marketing and a messaging issue as much as anything. It's funny. you thinking about just thinking while you're talking, like something that just sticks out to me. That's so, so simple that no, like barely any courses in America do is like, why can't my dog come with me? <laughs> like, you know how well, much easier it would be if you could take your dog out? Like, do you know how much easier it would be for me to get my wife out if our dog could come? Like, you know, it, it all of a sudden becomes more than, you know, you're you're spending time outside in a beautiful place. You know, it goes back to the landscape architecture. Like, I mean, there's so much, you know, you can do with a beautiful green space, a big, beautiful green space. And I, so you're kind of Rockwind Links was was is your big calling card for community golf. Explain to us a little bit about, you know, Rockwind as a golf course, but also a community center. Sure. So Rockwind Community Links is in Hobbs, New Mexico. It was, it was host of a, of an old military golf course uh, built in the forties. They, they did training sessions uh, on the property right next. Uh, They were housing a military uh, personnel on the property, they converted to a golf course and it was just, I, I guess you could say it was poorly built. And then on top of that, it was on a piece of rock. It's, you know, rock wind, it, you know, they called it the rock, Caliche rock. So it was, it was a typical municipally owned golf course that was you know, deteriorating in front of everyone's eyes. They needed a new irrigation. They, they had hard time, you know, having any quality turf. The soil wasn't, wasn't great. And, and they kept coming up to the uh, to the council to say, "Hey, we need to start putting some improvements to this." And and each time, you know, they kept. It wasn't as if they were saying no, but they said that there was higher priorities before we start improving the golf course. So when I was introduced uh, to the club, I was actually hired to do a little par three course. They they wanted to do an assessment to say, "Hey, we see a lot of these beginner courses starting to say we have an eighteen hole golf course. We have a kind of." sort of a driving range. It wasn't great. I had a net at the back of it. It was really short, but Hey, let's talk about putting a, a short course. So part of, you know, my initial plan was just to build a, a little nine hole, 12 hole par three course. And I said, well, guys, did you think about this? And, you know, cause it was really disconnected and went through a bunch of different ideas. I said, well, actually what we need to be thinking about is broadly, how is this facility attracting golfers and training them and transitioning them from the beginnings through on to the serious golfer and I presented them the community links concept. I said, this is, it isn't just about golfers anymore. Now we'll talk about developing people through life and, and, and family and, and those types of things. And the, the city manager at the time was listening to me and, and he's like, you know what? That's interesting. I, I can, I can sell that. And my, my, my council will buy into that. So we went in front of council, said, this is what we're thinking. And it turned from, 
you know, a simple irrigation project or a par three course to now the golf course becoming a central component of their entire community that Hobbs is, is oil and gas driven. So timing is everything They're They were seeing oil prices on the rise at the time and, 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 and a very pro uh, golf mayor and a couple of people on the council that played golf, not everybody, but a couple. So when I, we, we went in front of them and said, Hey, before we go any farther, we want to see if you're, if, if you're interested in this. And, and we're really proud to say that every time we went in front of council with what we tried to do, we got seven zero votes in favor that this golf course should become a central part of the city plan. And it, and, and that this idea that we're going to diversify the user group to attract more than just golfers, uh, was, was tangible. They, they, they saw that. So we have a trail system. We've got an open, we built a five acre affluent water storage that the golf course here uses for irrigation, which then has an open space adjacent to it. So if, the trail system connects to the through the clubhouse community center area and then has a spot where where golfers non-golfers can actually watch people play golf there's a par three real close across the water so they can sit on a little seat wall uh there's a nice big open green space next to the range so that we have uh you know kids programs snag golf is a big part of what they do snag is now in all their schools as a part of this project uh the community college plays there so, you know, they, they have expandable outdoor event areas. So they, they put on uh, symphonies and, you know, this in, in Hobbs, this is this was the basically the, the, the middle of, of the city. Now everything happens at their golf course and it couldn't have come together any better. We had support from everybody across uh, their you know, their level of government government. And uh, and the, speaking of the USGA, they've they've now mo- they've labeled it as the model Muni, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, for others to look at. I think a lot of people like you go in and say, Hey, like, you know, let's fix this golf course up. Let's, you know, make it this and this and this. So this, this course, uh, you know, needed obviously irrigation, which is a big, and it's a good timing piece for doing a project. But in terms of economics, like, you know, how can, how can a muni look at this and say, we're going to, we're, it's not going to crush our, our bottom line with, with the project. It, that's a, that's the biggest question I get. It's like, okay, well, great, you did that at Rockwind. There's no way we can do that here. Mm-hmm. And I always turn around and say, are you sure that you can't? <laughs> so, you know, most every city is making some pretty major investments into quality of life. And so, to me, it's about understanding what's important. And so, the very first thing is a is a is a marketing and a messaging issue that that I'll stand in front of the council and I'll say, okay, who here plays golf? And more than likely, one or two out of seven or nine will raise their hand. I said, okay, well, who here has played golf? And then a couple more people raise their hand. And, and so to me, I, I, I immediately go back to the discussion that if, if we don't understand the value of what this golf course could mean to the city or the, municipality or the, or the area, the community, the county, then we, we shouldn't even be talking about anything. I, I would tell you that you should be considering closing this golf course. And then, of course, everyone's like, no, we can't close this golf course. You know, we'll, you know, we have a lot of people that play golf here. Well, ultimately you only have, you know, a few thousand rounds a year. And so I start to say, let's start building pride. So that's number one is, is messaging and, and, and support of golf. And then almost always there are practice facilities, short tees, uh, you know, open space that you can carve out 
it's really challenging this idea that an 18 hole regulation course is, is, is what's right for, for, uh, cities across the country. So not every golf course needs to be 7,000 yards, a 6,200 yard golf course is just fine for a lot of people. So we, we, we look at kind of carving out spaces within the space to be able to do that. And then I also, I, I talk about it in terms of a roadmap. So this isn't going to happen over a short, doesn't always have to happen over a short period of time. It just needs to be, the messaging needs to be accurate. It needs to be repeated over and over and then implemented at the pace that you guys feel is appropriate for funding. But if you're not going to fund it, then I would just tell you that you consider closing. Yeah, it, it seems like they got to get behind it or or get out. Um, yeah. And I think... It, Differentiation to me is something that always sticks out too. Is is that you? Know, I've I've been dealing with this a little bit with the course I grew up playing. Is is thinking about closing and you look at the landscape and it's they're all the same golf course that were yep. built in the same period in this just row of everything around it and it's 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 just like of course then all of a sudden it becomes price is is the thing that you compete on because you're no different than everything else. I, I wholeheartedly agree that, that, that in order for community golf to be successful, it has to be able to provide something that not, ever, not anyone else is providing. So if you look around your golf landscape, uh, you need to find what it is that, you know, that, 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 that the, the private business isn't, isn't providing or doesn't want to provide. So that's where these, these short courses, that's where the practice facilities and, and driving range concepts, that's why Top Golf I think, is becoming so, so popular. It's, it's it's providing something that that the that the rest of the golf community is not not giving everyone, and so as long as you can stand up and say that this is a course that's providing a a, a benefit to my community uh, in ways that the private market is not able to, then that's that's our niche. That's where the community golf starts to say, all right, then a, a two hundred thousand dollars subsidy starts to make sense because one, it's a smaller footprint, so we're we're we're, we're using less resources less less dollars oh by the way you can play it much quicker and and it's uh you know it's it's uh, it's able to attract an area that uh, of the of the population that wouldn't necessarily go to that championship eight, you know 18 hole 7000 yard golf course i even think about it with the the course i'm talking about like in the area there's no good driving ranges like alone having a driving range you're going like a really a quality driving range you're going to attract people that are members of the country clubs that have subpar driving ranges yeah it, it's it's quite interesting for me to look back on properties that were all built in this this window that we're we're talking about in the 90s how the driving range was was you know the his, history says you were lucky to have a driving range, and then when you did, uh, it was just for warm-up purposes. So it really wasn't really thought of as a place that people would come and just bang balls and, you know, tear up turf and dig holes. They would they would basically take a couple of swings and go out and play golf. That that entire mentality is has shifted, and I, and I talk a lot about this myself. That's that's my life. That's that's what makes sense to me. I don't go out and play eighteen holes with my buddies anymore. I I go out and play four or five holes with my kids. I got three young boys and then I'll take them to the, to the range to hit balls. And then I might take them in and get a soda. Right. So that, or maybe put on the green, then, then the soda. So that to me is a, a, a shift in the, in how we use a golf course. And I think that, that is a real, if you don't have that, if you're not trending in that area and the practice facilities, the driving ranges, then, then I think you're missing out. 
It's it's funny. I was talking to my buddy that I grew up playing this golf course with, and you know we we played in high school together and grew up riding our bikes there, and then we were the same guys that were hitting chewing up our neighbor's lawn. But we talked, you know, we had coffee, we were talking, and it's like we spent the most time on that course's putting green, and I, you know, you start to think about why, and it was it was it was massive. It was it was you know probably like a 10,000 square foot putting green. So you, we could do, and you could chip and everything. And, and you know, we'd spend hours there and we'd never get tired with it. It wasn't a great green, like in the sense of like, it wasn't like supremely interesting with contours, but what it was, was it was free. It was open and it allowed us to like, uh, it was a place we could just spend time, you know? And I spend think Spend time with your friends. Exactly. Yeah. And it, and it's like, you think about it, it's like we spent more time on that putting green, chipping and putting, than we did playing the golf course. Yep. Yeah, so the uh, the city manager got famous in, in Hobbs for saying, you know, if, if you're not, if a city is not too concerned about green fee, you can really start to grow the game. And this idea that you'd have a bucket of putters next to your putting green where there was a walking trail that someone might actually pull a putter and hit a ball because they've never done that before, you know, the business mind in golf says, well, I should charge them for that. That should be a $5 putting course fee, right? And so this this is back to this idea of community golf. I understand they're doing really good things like down in Winter Park. You know, this idea that, that, that it's not all about a green fee and it's not all about, you know, revenue sometimes. It's more about an asset and a quality of life and a spending time with your family discussion. And, you know, those are the ways to do it. And it's proven. We just haven't. We just ignored it for twenty years. That's why I'm saying that I think that it's it's prime for a comeback. Yeah, you look at golf and how it changes, and how there's these different innovations. And the the last big one was the minimalist movement that you know Tom Doak and Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw started with building golf courses that that were much more lay of the ground and and with the ground movement. And you you start to think about like what's going to be this next innovation with golf courses. And you have to look no further than an abundance of golf courses that were built that really don't fit needs or aren't any good. And I, you know, it also makes me think about the residential golf courses that just aren't very good golf courses, but were built to make money, you know, with residential developments. And, and that kind of fits into this. And I, I think reimagining those golf courses are, is what the future of golf course development is. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I think, I think it's going to be interesting because there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, sticky parts to that because there, there's, there's zoning regulations and open space and those types of things. But, but I, 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 I couldn't agree more. And I think, I think the, the idea that, we're going to look back on courses like Sand Hills and the development like Bandon Dunes. I, I, you know, we talk a lot about the dark ages of golf, but I think those will be the, the facilities that really, you know, we'll, we'll look back and saying that's where the golf industry turned to another direction. I, I, I can't help but think even some of these residential courses are going to have to then change away from just being a golf course. They're going to have to be more park open space. Because I just don't think those are those are the ones that aren't going to make it. I think everyone's proven that when you get out into open space, free of development and out in nature, that's when we really, really, that's when we know we really love golf. It, a house on a golf course is like an immediate detractor for people. It's it's amazing. 
It is. I remember I I was talking about Philly Cricket Club with somebody, and and somebody goes, somebody was like, you know, there's the those condos on the thirteenth hole just ruin everything. And I was I'm thinking I'm like, wow, one hole like having condos by there, but <laughs> this guy, you know, he just was offended by those condos. Like, and like I think that's part of the essence of of golf is being out in the open and, and getting to, you know, disconnect from the world. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that whole idea of, of development and the right balance for all of those, those elements, you know, the one thing that I believe happened over a 20 or 30 year period is that the golf course wasn't the number one driver. So you chose sites that you didn't necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily build a golf course by itself. It wasn't a great piece of land and you ended up you know moving a lot of dirt and you raised the houses on the outside and dropped the golf on the on the middle uh the center uh it just got to be repetitive and and boring Tun- so tunnels <laughs> exactly and it's and, you know, it it's still occurring there, there there's properties that are happening i mean there's a big development here in phoenix going and i was just at yesterday that you know they're building houses all over the place and there's a golf course in the middle of it but but what i found interesting about it is is the clubhouse was not just a clubhouse. There was, I walked in, the very first thing I saw was a bike rental uh, a shop. It was a clubhouse kind of built in a U. Uh, and so you saw bike rentals and then sea kayaks because you could actually take it out on a big lake that they were building. And and then there's, there's a whole open space that went off into the center of the property. And the very first thing you see uh, as you walk in the back of the clubhouse was a big open outdoor uh, seating area and then the driving range. So it was right in line with all the things that I'm talking about, that the driving range becomes more of a social center and people are hanging out. You just go over, hit some balls and come back over here. Uh, you know, the, it, it was so so the residential part of this is I don't think is necessarily going to go away entirely. But I think how we use some, some of these central spaces is definitely evolving. Yeah, I heard a statistic that a golf course within walking distance of your home is worth like ten thousand dollars to your home. Uh, I don't know about that. I, that wouldn't surprise me. That's a, just something I heard with this this uh, research I've been doing recently, which is it's crazy. But you think about like these big residential, like why doesn't the clubhouse or have like a coffee shop? You know, if I live like down the street, like I'm going to go there rather than I'm going to go like spend 10 minutes in my car going to get coffee. Yeah, that's I think you're you're kind of touching on some of the things that I that I've been in the middle of, you know, it's one thing to be talking about a message. It's another thing to actually implement it, mm-hmm. implement that message. And, you know, so our golf business, if you will, is, is really, they've got the management companies and the operators, they've got it pretty well oiled to a golf business. So they, they know golf. Uh, what they're not really good at is, or not, I mean, they can be, they just haven't chosen to be uh, good at doing other things like coffee houses, bike rentals. They don't understand it. So now how do you position the, the economic there for these guys that, that, that actually can come in and diversify the user without having the risk of losing? That's, that's what's really – that's an interesting part of this. I, I talked to a management company uh, a lot about this, and he says, well, Andy, this all sounds great. I love the community links concept, but right now no one's hiring us to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to change that. Yeah. So having working with a municipality – versus a private club like what are you, what are the differences that you see <laughs> uh, do you have enough time uh, you know i couldn't you know there, there, I, let me start with some of the similarities so the similarities are 
there's always a discussion about money. There's always a discussion about budget. And there's always a discussion about downtime and disturbance. And so there, there's certainly some similarities that, that across, you know, both types of projects. And probably the biggest difference with the municipality, uh, the, you know, the kind of the community golf perspective is just all of the other buy-in that has to happen. It, it it's, it's just takes longer to make decisions and more people have to weigh in. And that's, that's one of the things that I think that, that, that I've done well at, and I kind of promote myself as is I've got the patience to kind of go through that. I'm not going anywhere. So this doesn't have to happen in six months. It can happen in 12 months or I, like, you know, I don't like to take too long, but, and so the, the stakeholder buy-in the, the meetings to the town hall meetings, uh, negotiating uh, certain aspects of the plan, you know, this is where you start to see, you know, if I d- kind of diverge a little bit, you see what a golfer really looks like. You know, when you're in a, a town hall of 120, 150 people and you have h- half golfers, half non-golfers, you start to see how we as a group, as a golfing group, react. And I got to be honest, you know, the golfers are not very organized. They're not. They, they, they come in. They say, this is our golf course. And then if they're upset, they'll leave. A lot of golfers will walk out. They'll say they'll never come back. You know, whereas the the mountain biker uh, mountain bike association or the equestrian, you know, they'll come up with a PowerPoint presentation. They'll present everything to us very matter of factly. And when you actually look back and you start to see how how the process is going, you know, I I find myself defending golf just from a from a group standpoint. You know, not necessarily just me individually or what I'm trying to do. And so, you know, managing all those different type of community uses is, is by far the, the difference, uh, the big difference. But I will say is that from a club, from a private club membership is you still have opinions, but generally it's really driven by, you know, by being a member at that club. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, like a, one of the things in my experience with uh, municipalities and, and the dynamics of a municipal golf course is like, how much stock is put into their the the random group of of players that show up for whatever meeting and what they say and and how they'll you know if, if you raise the race time out of here is like is that really the customer that you want if you if you i'm giving you a better golf course and it's ten dollars more you you're out of here you know it's that's real that's real and i've i've been in those meetings where the golf you know three or four golfers will get in front of the council and raise their voice and tell the council that, that they'll never come back. And it scares the council because this is their constituents. They don't, they don't want that negativity. So they end up saying, Oh, well, we better, you know, we better you know, change our message or the golfers are going to be upset. And you know, that's, you know, I find myself, I'm the golfer, right? I'm that's, that, I'm a golfer, but I also understand I'm looking at it from a kind of a, you know, I think a bigger picture and I, you know, losing a customer is a really difficult thing and i think with all this discussion about technology in the game and and the distances and all this evolution of the game i think one of the biggest things we're going to have a question about is what defines a golfer what is a traditional golfer and and the challenges of this evolution you know you mentioned about bringing your dog out to the the course i I couldn't agree more Uh, but i've also seen it where golfers don't like it when two dogs are barking next to each other and they're in their backswing right that's the uh that's the traditional golfer that doesn't want those dogs there you know, we as a as an industry are our own worst enemy sometimes. You got your MBA from in Berkeley in 2012. I'm I'm curious. I I don't think that's a 
a degree that many architects have and how has it helped you from your business side? So quick clarification, it's not a full MBA. It was, it was an executive education, uh, pretty intense study, but I, I can't say that I have an MBA, but thank you for giving me the, hey, that. I'll that, always uh, give you. I'll, <laughs> but if you want to keep saying it, I'll, I'll go with it. Um, <laughs> I will say this, that, that the two things that, that I wish I would have learned quicker were that it's not about what you know, it's who you know. It's a relationship business. And then two would be understanding business from how to allocate dollars and how you know, we talk, we talk a lot about a design fee and how much people charge for a design, you know, for a young guy like me, my design, you know, generally my design fee has to last almost two years because I've got 12 months of, of design and then there's going to be a permitting window and then we might get the whole construction done in six months or, or 12 months. And so, you know, the economic behind, you know, how the dollars and cents of, of operating a design business, you know, we, we, we draw pictures We're we're, we're, creative people and typically we don't we're not really good at sales and we're certainly not good at business by <laughs> by nature so it's 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 really showed me what i don't know more than it's kind of given me what i do know <laughs> so i keep trying to be better at that mm-hmm. business business is hard let's uh transition into one of your more recent projects you did a restoration renovation of meadowbrook golf club up in Detroit, Michigan area, uh, a Willie Park design. And, and I think I, you know, I've been, I've gotten countless emails from people saying that it's a spot that I must check out. So tell us a little bit about Meadowbrook and how that job came about. Sure. Sure. Meadowbrook Country Club, Northville, Michigan, about 25 miles or so outside of, uh, well, about 30 miles outside of Detroit. And it was the private club, family family dominated it's 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 got swim tennis uh active social program and they chose to to undergo some master planning i think it was in 2013 or 2014 when i first you know it was early 14 when i first met them and they interviewed 15 guys i happened to get on the list and we went through a process of elimination you know that's that's the other thing about our business today is it's like it seems like you're either dealing with one or two guys or you're dealing with 20 guys. <laughs> so this was one of the ones that, that you end up, you end up just kind of having patience and providing as much information as you, as you can. And I made a, a, a few visits where I actually started to get to know some of the people, the general manager, Joe Marini and I kind of kicked it off uh, right from the beginning. We just kind of got along right away and it narrowed down to five and we did a big interview and I laid out some ideas and, you know, I focused a lot of about how I could sell a plan and be in front of a membership and, and all my focus group, you know, kind of concept. I have a big portion of my master plan where I get in front of the members and get to know them. And it, 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 it escalated into a contract and it was my first project in Michigan. And, and it was quite a, quite a coup for someone from Arizona coming to Michigan. You know, the state of Michigan is pretty, pretty specific about who they work with up there. They love their state. And so I'm originally from Wisconsin, so I guess I could, I could play off that I was a Midwesterner at, by heart. But uh, it couldn't have been better. It, I can't imagine finding another club that I've gotten along with better and had a better working relationship. And probably more importantly, a club that really trusted me and let me you know, kind of go through the process and then design a course that, that I think reflected what, we tried, you know, what, what the club needed and what, what we wanted to do. 
Uh, it was a Willie Park Jr. original design, but it was only six holes. Willie Park couldn't couldn't finish the the rest of the course because of of uh, financial issues. So Collis and Duray ended up expanding it uh, from Chicago. There, they they expanded it to eighteen holes. Those guys did a, a course up in uh, Chicago called uh, I think Glen Flora Country Club. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, you know, the, the Olympia Fields, they have some connection there, and then Flossmore has some connection between the two, and, and they brought, they actually brought, I believe they brought Park over to do Olympia Fields eventually. The North course. Yeah, right. the North course, right? It's it's interesting. And, so when you get this kind of a project, what kind of research goes into the architects and the history? Yeah, well, a lot. And I think one of the things that I just have an appreciation for whether or not it's hundred years old or if it's 15 or 20 years old is you know, let's find some history about why it is what it is. Cause you, there's always reasons. There's always a permitting issue. There's always a budget issue or there's something that goes in the, into the process of why that golf course looks the way it does. And so one of the big things about Meadowbrook is, is you could tell it, it had been expanded upon over a number of years and then they ultimately in the 70s did an Art Hills uh, master plan with a couple hole renovation. And Jerry Matthews was another one that had some work on bunkers and, and a, a tree planting plan. So they they did a fair bit of planting through the 80s. Excellent. And so, so yeah, there, there was there was a, so yeah, there's a, a huge amount of history. But one of the things that I clued in on is obviously wondering what it was that Willie Park Jr. really wanted in his 18-hole design, because there's an indication that he did 18-hole design, but he, did, he we didn't have any drawings for it. And so I dove deep into that. So I looked at his green design. I tried to do as much uh, local uh, local history. So, yeah, it, it, there's a tremendous amount of, of research that goes into it. So Willie Park Jr. is, I think, in America a little bit underappreciated, but he, I mean... He has some of the the some of the best designs in the United UK and and uh, obviously he did you know he's Maidstone and and Olympia Fields North were two of his designs here. What are some of the traits of a Willie Park course that might get overlooked? Yeah, Battle Creek outside of Detroit there is another good, really good uh, Willie Park. I actually I think that's one of the better ones. But so. To me, it feels like he's very driven on locating his greens. And, you know, so one of the parts of the of the research is we went over to England and we did as much as we could to, to see the work in the U.S., but this place called Huntercombe and a place called Sunningdale Old were two places that we knew or I knew that I wanted to get to, to get a hold of and, and actually see. And so Sunningdale's uh, got a little history. Yeah, just a little bit. Uh, it's it's hard. Well, it's hard for me to figure out exactly how much is still Park versus Colt, but but nonetheless, we knew that Huntercombe was his and relatively untouched. And so, when you compare what he did in the U.S. and then you look at what what we all think is really pretty good indication of, of what he liked about golf or what he thought he liked, it was a little bit of his experimentation uh, course at Huntercombe. Uh, you didn't quite you didn't quite relate. So you, it was obvious that the, th- the, the the courses that he were building here, he was doing a lot of work. He came back in 1915, back from uh, from the UK, landed I think on tax day in April uh, April 15th of 1915, and you see all the courses he was doing at one time. So you know you know, the whole Donald Ross discussion. How many times can he get to a course? And so 
the honeycomb project really resonated with us you know so it was a lot more interesting green contours a lot more diversity you know i think willie parks tends to do a lot of the same kind of greens and that's a little you know obviously nuances but you know back to front uh big deep uh, swale behind uh, so he was always very specific about locating his greens and and uh and then at honeycomb you know he he did a fair bit of uh drainage ditches and and grass bunkers that weren't always didn't have sand in them originally what they call over there willie park pots mm-hmm. you know part, pot bunkers and so i think we for us we realized that it wasn't all 18 hole uh entire 18 hole willie park jr at meadowbrook and that gave us some latitude to bring some of this flavor from from uh from england and then i had a committee that that a couple of them went with me to to england to see the the work and we came back to the U.S. and said, man, if we could bring some of that over here, it'd be cool. And I said, let's do it. And so we started to kind of, you know, so I would say it's a sympathetic, uh, I don't know if I'd use the word restoration, but it's sympathetic to Park's uh, work that we saw. But, you know, it was, it was as much of our own interpretation as it was anything that we had any documentation on. Mm-hmm. It's uh, how important is it to get, you know, your committee out to see stuff? when you're, when you're undertaking a, a, a project like this? I, I would tell you it's in, important incredibly important. It's one of the things that continues to be very difficult because getting everybody in the same place to go travel across the country is, is, is time intensive, resource intensive. Uh, it's great when you have work locally. So the area around Detroit has a lot of the stuff that we would have wanted to see, but you know, we went to Pittsburgh, went to the, to Long Island. And so, uh, one of our members is very familiar with the North Course at Olympia Fields, and so, you know, it, it's incredible. It's very important. If nothing else, it's a team building exercise. You actually get a chance to go stand on a green. I remember we went and played Garden City Golf Club. We stood in that you know, the, those greens and said, "Okay, what do we like? What we don't like?" And that that's a really cool part of the job, I believe, is that you know you get to sense what people are comfortable with. And I'll tell you that my committee was was really comfortable. <laughs> with doing something cool um so architecture I, I always feel like people have kind of awakening moments at different different times is it, are there a handful of courses or you know one particular golf course that you feel has inspired your career yeah i they're, 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 i'm thinking of a couple of backups but the number one without any question is the old course at st andrews and it's one of the things that, that I was in the business for a while before I actually got over there to see it. So as soon as I saw it, that was, you know, that was my, if you want to call it an awakening. And it was, it was certainly that same question that we all ask. It's like, how in the world did we get so far away from this in the U S? And so I, I got to come back to the, to the old course all the time. And then, and then number two is, you know, just understanding the impact that it's had on our businesses, the Sandhills golf club. I mean, that, that, that one really started to, to, to show you that 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 some of this this kind of ethic that you brought from that you had from from the old country of Scotland that was actually coming over here and, and it's such a beautiful place to do it in the sand dunes without an ocean but you got this ocean of, of dunes and so I would say those are probably two of the the ones that come right to mind mm-hmm. yeah they I uh, I gotta get over to the old course that's it's high on the high on the list of things to do but uh Sandals. The best part of the old course is walking it on Sunday. I mean, well, one of the good, one of the best parts of the old course is getting out there on Sunday, 
and walking around and seeing the greens and, and watching people uh, walk their dogs and, and all that stuff. That that's just that's just so cool. When you, when you go out to say a site visit for a potential project, what what's your prep look like? Do you do a lot of prep before? Do you go walk it blind without knowing it? Like how does that work? So one of the things that 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 I always it's 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 kind of interesting because I've had this happen to me a number of times where where I go out and I visit a committee with a committee and we go out and walk the golf course, and everybody is looking for me to just start talking, you know, well, I'm looking at this and look at that. When in fact, all I'm doing is just, I'm taking it in. And I think a lot of my feelings of design and, and my philosophy on design is what it, what does it feel like? I'm visualizing hitting shots. I'm looking at the forms and features are cool, but I'm just taking it in. And so one of the difficult parts that I've always, I've always felt one of the difficult parts of, of what, what we do is is not only looking at it for the first time and seeing it through our eyes, but then knowing how a membership plays it and understanding the differences between the better player versus the the average player. And and so I've I've been commented that people will just stop me and say, "Okay, Andy, what what are you saying now? What are you what are you seeing now? You're not saying anything." I'm like, well, I now I've gotten to the point where I just warn them. I said, "Guys, don't think that I'm going to talk too much. <laughs> I'm out here. I'm taking it all in." Uh, but overall, it, it, it's it's one of the things that I like about the 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 focus group portion of my of my process is that I get to know how these guys are actually playing it and not how I would play it and so you know to me that's there's a lot of time just understanding what they how they play it what they like about it what they don't like about it and then start to overlay my own feelings on top of it under through through that lens so that's that to me is so there's a lot of time and and when it comes down to the actual ideas I, I always talk, I'm an 80, 20 guy. I don't know what that, what the 80%, 20%, you got to get 80% right or 80% finished. And then 20%, uh, you, you can leave open, kind of open-ended. And I, that's kind of where my planning always goes is that, you know, let's get into 80%, but 20%, we can start to refine in the field. And sometimes it's a hundred percent. Sometimes you start all over, of course, but, but I, I always leave a little bit of, of my interpretation to kind of evolve when we finally get to construction. Yeah, it, with obviously with restoration is a big topic with the, the you know do you put it all back into place exactly how it was at the best time they determine for the golf course or do you you know modernize it a little bit and move bunkers into where they would have been given technology and distance lengthening? Uh, where do you have a stance on that or is every situation kind of different? Yeah, the, well, the easy answer is every situation is different. But I, I, I would, I would contend that that if you're going to call something a restoration, you better be darn sure that it's restored to what was actually built and what what it actually was. And mm-hmm. so, to me, the the word restoration, I kind of laugh on it because you know it's one of those words that everyone loves and everyone gets it, but then it becomes so overused, like just the idea that someone's restoring something sort of gives us this connotation that, that it must be exclusive, must be really good. Mm-hmm. And so, so I, I'm one that, that, that tries to, you know, to, to understand the logistics of restoration and understand if that's even possible. And even if it's, if, if it's something they want to do, I'm working with a club in California right now, we've had this exact conversation. We've got a really good aerial that shows uh, some, some, the golf course in a state that, that a couple of really famous architects have worked on it. And we said, Hey, do we want to restore to this? And, 
and some of it's not possible. And, and then, you know, then we have those bunkers that are 180 yards off the tee, right in the, right in the landing area of, of Mrs. Jones and, and, and those types of things. So what, what I've tried to do is I always try to go back in and restore the, the location of that bunker and give it the feeling that there was a bunker there, but I'll maybe soften it, make it rough, but make it part of the composition of the golf hole, not necessarily put bunkers back, uh, but then use mowing lines and try to do something in turf to actually accentuate what that, what that course uh, was like. And not necessarily, if, that is if we're not going down the restoration tack. But I always like to, to pay homage to those old, old features, even if it's a little bump off in the rough that only me and the superintendent know about. At least we know that that's where it was. Um, what's, your, what's your pet peeve at a, at a golf course? I've got mine. I'm just curious what yours are. <laughs> uh, where do I start? Um, green speeds. I, I can't tell you how many golf courses I, I know that, that consume way too much energy and too much thought and resources around trying to, trying to get speeds to a certain level. Uh, and then I would also say the, you know, one of my pet peeves personally is this idea of designing courses for the better player while making them playable and interesting for the, you know, the average player. And, you know, to me that, that is, that sounds so easy to do when you apply those to a particular piece of property and especially a renovation that has limitations. Uh, it, it, you know, playing the right set of tees is so important. And, and so from a golfing standpoint, the idea that any man would ultimately move forward to a set of tees that aren't, you know, in his wheelhouse, to me, that that's a major pet peeve. But all of the things around length and, and teeing, uh, teeing grounds is something that, that, that I probably would describe as a pet peeve. Yeah, it's funny. I, so I, I played golf with a guy that I've played golf with, like, dozens of times in, in Florida recently. He's an older guy and you know, he likes playing back with me when he, and he, you know, he's a guy that's played in, in a, in a ton of USGA events. Like he, this guy's a stick. He was, you know, one of the best players in Ohio for a long time and as an am. And, uh, and it's funny, he's, he's, he's getting, I think he's close to 70 now, but we played and, uh, we had another older guy in the group and he played way up. I mean, he played under probably under 6,000 yards, 5,700 yards. And like all of a sudden, like this guy was a, a stick again. And it's like, right. and I, I talked to him about it. He's like, I love it. Like I play like I used to play because I'm hitting shots. And I'm getting birdie putts. I, when I hit a good drive, I've got a short iron. And when I hit it, you know, on longer par fours, I've got, I've got long iron, mid irons, but I'm not just chipping up all the time anymore. Like if, I mean, he can go play in the back tees and shoot 76, 78, but now he, he can shoot in the sixties every time if he plays up. Hmm. Awesome. And it, it's just more fun. Yeah. So a little, little bit going back to Meadowbrook for a second, there, there were some people, some, some, some gals on our, on our uh, committee and in the focus groups that thought the game of golf was meant to be played driver three wood on every par four and par five. And in some cases driver on every par three, that's what they thought golf was. And, and, when you start to think about that, that there's, there's a whole generation of golfers that have not been able to, to experience the game the way that we talk about, you know, the, the driver short iron or a drivable hole, you know, they, they think of a drivable hole being a par three. <laughs> it's crazy. It's uh, 
Yeah, I, I think that that playing the right tee is like one of the biggest epidemics in American golf. I, I and then in United Kingdom, just there's so many golf courses that are like you know fifty six hundred yards. That's fine, right? Well, that's the difference. That's the difference where where because there's this discussion about how many tees, how many teeing grounds on a golf hole are too many. Is 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 three the right number? Is four? Is five? Oh my gosh, we can't do six. That's way too many. Well, that only happens when you get yardages above the 6,300 yard mark. You know, a lot of these, even if you get to 6,600 yard, you might have a little small little back tee, but you know, it's now when you go from 7,300 yards all the way down to 4,000, which is what I'm trying to do is try to get this diversification. Uh, it's, it's hard to make a golf hole look classic and, and like it fits with all these little pads. So that's one of the things that I think we're really, you know, we're really working hard to, to give that diversity and, you know, combo sets of tees are really popular in my world where you can only, you know, only have to build three or four sets of tees, maybe one's all the way up in the fairway. So you're not really mowing that as a tee and then combo in between so that you have the right yardage that you're looking for, but you're only utilizing three tees. To me, that's, that makes a lot of sense. It, I, I mean, playing more tees and different tees on different holes, like is only going to add to the variety of the golf course, especially if you play the club the course on a daily basis or a, like, yeah. a regular basis. To- totally agree. So, so sand hollow, I worked on a project in sand in St. George, Utah, sand hollow. And when I take friends there, I never play from the scorecard. We always have a game. You know, not all my friends are all great players, but you know, well, I'm not a great player, but I mean, the, the, some of them are, are lesser than I am, but I'll take them to a set of tees to say, okay, this is what we were thinking about here. And this is where you play it now. And then the, there's a, there's a 20, it's 27 holes. And one of, one of the nines is a kind of an kind of open all mode together concept called the Lynx nine. And we specifically intended that course to be played from multiple sets of tees so that you could have a different feeling as you played it through. So uh, to me, I never go back to my courses and actually play from the card. I will always take my friends, especially if it's only one time. All right, guys, let's go play from this tee because this is where it really, based on who I'm playing with, this is exactly how it was meant to be played. And to me, that you know, of course, that's a little inside knowledge from my standpoint, but the it's it's not very well accepted and not 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 well no not well practiced within our industry for sure. Uh, we talked about uh, band and dunes earlier, and I mean, I think that was one of the big philosophies of that whole place was like designing a golf course around like a, at a yardage where people would enjoy golf. Absolutely. I mean, those well, courses and even, are shorter. Even the original course, they've they've even added some tees going forward. You know, my friend Art Little has been a part up there helping out with this idea of of relating swing speed to actual yardage on a golf course. And when you actually use something somewhat technical like that, you start to say, okay, you know, there's certain limitations for for actual abilities based on how you're swinging and how far you could actually carry the ball. Because that's a lot, a lot of what it comes down to is these forced carries or getting up to the fairways. So, yeah, but I couldn't agree more. They've done a, done a great job of, uh, you know, now they even funnel everybody right to the 63 or 6,200 yard golf course. Mm-hmm. You got your start in the industry in a, in a role for a construction company that is regularly contracted to do work. And I'm curious your take um, on kind of this design build and versus design contract. Uh, not really schism is I don't know if that's the right word, but debate <laughs> that that is you know prevalent in golf course architecture. 
Well, that's that's a big big discussion. So anybody who's worked in a really you know a, a good open design build relationship where where not everybody not nobody on the team is is going to get penalized and and there's not a a major schedule. Uh, it's not that we're milking time or or whatever, but uh, the design build is by far the you know the best way to get results and and certainly have you know some pretty good fun doing it. Where where the design contract starts to become uh, you know more of a role, and 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 there's a lot of talk about design build and and how. You know, in the in the twenty thirty years ago, architects would draw plans and then hand them over to a contractor. You know, I get that, and in in a lot of cases, I've been a part of some projects like that. But that happened for I think a, a real reason. Even today, even when you when you're doing a design build, you're still having to have a contractor as part of the as part of the team. I've yet, even today, you know, the, to find those. You know, that's what we did at Sand Hollow. We had all everyone on a time and materials, and we started. The project and we didn't stop until we were happy with it uh, but that is so rare these days owners want budgets they want time frames certainly on a on a renovation uh, schedule they only want to be closed for a certain part of the season or only one season and that's it or else it's not going to pass and so contractors start to bring the ability for architects to to meet those goals and i think to me when you apply then when you apply the actual business of, of design and, and being able to only have a certain amount of time in your, in your schedule that, you know, to be able to spend a hundred percent of your time on a golf course, you know, that limits you on a, on a lot of other uh, areas. So what I've done is I've set my, I, I try to include design shaping in part of my contract. I've got a guy that I, I've done a lot of work with. His name's Scott, Scott Clem, but I've I, a great guy, great an architecture geek. He, he understands it from what we're all trying to accomplish, but I've got other guys that I've worked with. I always try to have somebody there to support me, um, but but I think as long as you're able to spend the right amount of time in the field, which is what I always try to do, even though I'm not on a piece of equipment. However, I I, ha- I have operated. I just I just don't anymore, <laughs> and so um, those guys are a lot better at it than I am. And so you know the designed contract works for me in the in the times that clients uh, dictate it, and then I'm able to spend a lot of time in the field. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but that there, there's a lot there on that on that discussion. You know, I've always wondered for guys that are really promoting design build, you know, especially when you know the self operators. You know, I just think of it in my own my own time. You know, I've got a family. I've got three, three young boys. are playing baseball. You know, so I I prefer to try to get it in a position where I where I work with contractors on a regular basis or shapers on a regular basis because you know Scott goes you know, at months at a time at certain places when, when it's the right project. Uh, but it, you know, it, the design build has its, its own limitations and there's only so much time in a day that if you're going to want to do multiple projects or if you're lucky enough to have multiple projects going on at one time, the design build gets a lot more difficult when you, when you spread yourself thin. Is the efficiencies of running a business, it, it definitely, it, it hinders how many projects you can take on. Um, I think, you know, I think there's a huge value to, you know, the design build and the, the work. I, it's a it's a fascinating aspect because, you know, it, I think it, everything in all of 
the world kind of tends to swing on pendulums, you know, and in the 80s and early 90s, it was way over on the contractor side. You know, this is the way to do it, you know. And yeah, that- what I'd say about that, though, you know, one of the things that, that, that I have to say about the contractor side is that, you know, because the business became so uh, so busy, you now have a lot of people building golf courses who don't even play golf. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I feel you talk a lot about the dark ages, you know, we maybe referenced that before, you know, a lot of it is, is people just didn't understand the game and you're now you're asking somebody to put a little curl in a green, a little wrinkle, a little, a little bump. And, you know, Scott and I will shape it in and we'll try to get it in there. Right. And, you know, I'll even be out there with my rake and shovel and getting it exactly right. And then the finish crew comes through and wipes it out because, you know, the last 10 Fazio jobs they've done, that was something that got wiped out. We removed it. Well, no, that was something I specifically wanted there and they'd never seen it before. And so to me, to me, what, what the design build concept today is really doing is it's putting the focus back on understanding the game of golf. Yeah. Uh, to, to me, that's, that's, what's really cool about it. And, you know, and I think you can get, you can get there, you know, back to that 80, 20 rule. You, we need to make it at least 80% right. Now the question is how much of that 20% I try to get as close to hundred percent as I possibly can. And the only way to get a hundred percent is, is actually being there, doing it yourself, design building. Uh, but then again, if I'm there for the last two months doing that, more than likely I missed out on another RFP. I wasn't able to write, uh, you know, make a visit to go inquire about this other project. And oh, by the way, I just missed three baseball games. And so, you know, life happens in between there. And to me, that's where I, I wonder how the design build will stand up from a business standpoint, because the, the contracting happened for a reason. And that was to be able to do a lot of golf over a very short period of time. Now, we've swung back the other way to your analogy with the pendulum. Uh, I just wonder how much we're going to actually be able to, uh, you know, whether design build will actually be a sustainable model for, for guys like me. I, I think it ends up settling somewhere in the middle where, you know, there's there's a, you know, there's a role of each and different projects call for different methods, you know? Yep. I think yeah. Well, and I think a, a, a $5 million renovation is a lot different than a $600,000 bunker project, right? So I think, I think to me, to me, scale and, and logistics start to play right in line with, you know, the right construction process. Do you need this kind of contractor with this kind of financial, financial sense you know, or for financial backing to be able to, to, to get this project done. I went back to Meadowbrook and I, I went to them and I said, you know, guys, if you're asking me how to do this right, we should design build and get, get a contractor to help support us and bring in some, some support staff and put everybody on a time and materials so that there's no, there's no feeling of, uh, you know, of everybody, everybody getting, you know, lost or, or losing. And, the the president of the club at the time said, Andy, we just can't do that. We we need a number. We need to go to the membership with a number. And I said, well, I can give you a number. Yeah, but we don't have a contract that says that it's not going to exceed that. Well, no, it's a time and materials, but yet you're gonna we're going to manage this. It just didn't fly. Now, looking back, he looks at it, he says, oh, now I see what you're saying. I, that would have been some value there, but there's no way I could have convinced Meadowbrook to do that. They're just, so we, we, we picked our battle and we, we design contracted it. Scott uh, and, a, and another couple of guys were shapers on it. And then uh, we had a contractor, you know, doing the heavy lifting. 
let's get into some lighter stuff. All right. All right. Who do you consider the most, uh, the least appreciated architect? Least appreciated. Underappreciated would be. Underappreciated. You know, I, I go back to a guy like Perry Maxwell. I know he's probably gained a little bit more tra- traction in our architectural world than he has in years past, but I got a chance when I lived back in Arkansas and Oklahoma and Texas, I got a chance to see some of his stuff and he built, you know, in today's world, he would have been able to build golf courses for almost nothing. He was a great router of golf courses and, and did things in the depression that, that is probably equal to or, or greater than what we did through the, our own great recession. So I'm going to say Perry Maxwell. All right. What's your favorite design feature that flies under the radar? Chocolate drops. I think that's a misunderstanding. I'm a guy that, that when you go see a place like Garden City Golf Club or even go to Hunter, Hunter Comb and and see see these old school kind of, you know, you excavate and then put a pile of dirt and it just has fescue growing on the top of it and there's three or four or five of them in that area and they become part of the the aesthetic of the whole course and the hazard and the strategy. So those, I'm a big, I love stream features and I love rock walls. I love things that, that are able to make something look interesting and authentic and maybe old. And I think a good old fashioned chocolate drop does that. You like uh, artificial rock walls? Well, if they're done in a, in a, in a way, we did these, we did these series. Uh, I like them when they're done, when someone thinks they're a hundred years old. So we did that, this. That was getting mad. I was hoping that was going to be the response. <laughs> we did a rock wall behind uh, the first screen and, and along the second tee at Meadowbrook. I did a lava, lava rock wall at, 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 uh, Saint, in, at Sand Hollow. We imported this lava from like three miles away and everybody who sees it thinks it's been there a hundred years. So, uh, we work really hard to make it look cool. Nothing drives me more than seeing like a uh, a brand new rock wall that like you can tell was just installed and and just is like screams like waste of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so one of the best parts of this rock wall that we did at Sand Hollow is we we stacked them all up and then we'd go periodically with a with an excavator and push it over. I'm like yes. That's right. It fell over right there. So, and we go to the next spot and then we took sand and blew it up over the top of it. You know, we crossed one of the holes at Sand Hollow right in front of the second tee on the Lynx course. So it was right in front of the tees. So the average guy could skip it over the wall. So, so we actually piled up and ramped up the sand as if it was a dune that kind of blew over the wall. Um, all right. You, you ready for overrated, underrated? Yeah, I guess so. Let's do this. All right, cross bunkers. Cross bunkers. Well, they I would call them underrated in the fact that people just don't appreciate their why they're there. Uh, and it, it's kind of a tend, it's kind of a, a, a signal on what's happened with the game of golf where where if a cross bunker is 180 yards off the tee and everyone hits into it, uh, the idea that you should have played around it uh, has been lost. So I, I guess I'll call cross bunkers underrated because they, for a period of time, they, they just all but disappeared on our golf courses. But slowly with this restoration, uh, you kind of, uh, you know, where restoration has been going, you're seeing a lot of them come back. Yeah, I, I agree. They, uh, I feel like a lot of them fell, fell to, uh, mowing lines shrinking also. 
Well, I think a lot of them are on the tee, uh, but the ones that I'm having some really good success bringing back are the ones that are short of the greens. And when when golfers actually see that that they're there to distort, you know, and that that the better player has an equal problem with seeing where that where it, where it heads where how far it is from the green and whether or not they know it's further away, but yet it still kind of gets them thinking. And so that fifty-yard bunker off of the green on the you know off of the green and the approach bunkers, I'm starting to see those starting to gain some really good traction, which I'm really happy about. You know, I I lost my yardage gun uh, a few months ago, and oh, I, I'm sorry about that. Well, it I to tell you the truth, I've like really enjoyed playing golf without it, like especially Great. when I go to new golf courses. Because yeah, I, I don't have one of those. They, I don't have any of those. I get tricked all the time. <laughs> well, I think one of the things that that we could do in the in the in the rules of golf as we start to bring on this new ball or whatever's going to happen with technology and distance is is to allow or or to try to promote you know six six club nine club something you know twelve you know eleven club something other than fourteen so you get into the tweener uh, shots where you're actually hitting a seven iron from 140 yards and and when you start doing some of those things those four bunkers really become interesting. And you actually use them because you know why they're there. You just hit them over the top of it and it runs it out. Mm-hmm. So I, I I love – it's one of the things as a golfer I try to do more of it. You know, it's harder nowadays because it's rare when – well, I shouldn't say rare, but it, you know, a lot of golf courses don't allow for the runouts anymore. We're trying to get that changed. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, you catch that backside of a bunker that's 20 yards short and you get the – it's like a springboard that – that kicks it right to the green. It's it's that's one of the cool things that I feel like has been lost with with the way the games changed in terms of the aerial game is that all these like especially when you go to these golden age courses, all these cool little slopes that are short of the green that that just don't get it used anymore, or if they haven't been, you know, if the the mow lines are off or just sitting there in rough. That's right. Well, one of the things that I feel really proud about is the people that have open their minds to some of the features we did up at Meadowbrook is that the guys that are guys and gals that are struggling are, are, are recovering around the greens. Like they always do just a sand wedge and try to get it up and stop near the hole. But when you start seeing the different, you know, different backstops and the places for it to feed down into different pins, people, you know, I had a guy the other day say, Hey, Andy, I played Meadowbrook last fall. You you want, you want to know what I thought of it? So yeah, yeah, of course. He says, I thought it was fun. Is that what you, is that what you, is that all right that I thought it was fun? I'm like, heck yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. And the guys who open their minds to those types of shots are just fun. Yeah. That's a, I mean, like, I like to hit like punch drivers on when I play a Baritz hole that's like a rainer now, just so I can see the ball run through the trunk. Yeah. And, and run up to the bat. Like a lot of times I end up making a bogey because. <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 but I don't really care because like I yeah, had more fun. Yeah, but you're happy with that. I mean, yeah. you played it, you tried it. Absolutely, yeah, exactly. Makes the par even better, or a birdie even better. Yeah, it's uh, all right. Next, uh, overrated, underrated, uh, car pass. Car pass. Well, they're certainly not underrated. I'd call them overrated. All right. I think you're. I think you're finding a lot more people being open to other alternatives. I think people. People get what we what we're coming where we're coming from from a design standpoint more more than just a few years ago. So I think uh, they're certainly overrated, and I think it's trending in the right direction. 
I think my pet peeve, like the ultimate one that bugs me the most is when you see a car path at like a old school golf course that's running down where the fairway should be. You know, it's funny you you mentioned that. What what comes right to mind is one of the courses we went to go visit in England was Swinley Forest. And and I guess I shouldn't pick on Swinley, but, you know, a lot of those UK courses, they, you know, when you think about how car paths have evolved, they didn't have car, car paths. So then all of a sudden people started driving these buggies and they all drove in the exact same spot. And then they drove in a straight line. So oftentimes they go right down the middle of the fairway. And then what do you do next? Well, there's a path there. We better put some paving or we might better put some gravel as opposed to someone saying, you know what? We don't want them to go there. We want them to go over here so we don't see the path. And so a lot of times you get to these old courses, the car paths are no, in no different place than where it was when they first got their first carpet, you know, first golf carts. And so, you know, the, the, one of our committee members said, yeah, Andy, you talk about car paths, but look at this place. This is a Swinley forest. They're right in the middle of the fairway. <laughs> so, but I, I agree with you. Uh, the less you see a car pass, the better. Would it be, a, I just was thinking about this as like, could you go no cart path, but then just change like, you know, the, the signed and, and would that work or would that just not work? You know, like, I, I, I think it, yeah, never, would it work? You know? Well, no, I mean, it would work in some places, but I mean, the reason why there's cart paths is because everyone drives in the same exact spot and it gets compacted and, and it wears out the turf. And then next thing you know, it has a low spot and it becomes mud. Uh, so, you know, the re- there's car paths for a reason because we have a thing called a, gar- a car path, a, car- a golf cart. So if, as long as we have golf carts, there's going to have to be paths. And I think if as long as we just, you know, there's a way to do them well. And I think we it's one of the things we spend an exorbitant amount of time thinking about, probably more than we'd like to. I'd hope to one day not to do a golf project without car paths. Uh, do you but- think it could work at a, at a community golf level? No car path, no carts, golf course? Well, you certainly could try. Uh, I, I think ultimately you're going to end up getting into something where everyone rides in the exact same spot. You'd end up having to. I'm get saying carts no too. carts completely. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, I could. I think there's got to be a commitment to to kind of going back to the the caddies and golf push carts, the trolleys, if you will. You know, that the, that's the other thing too. A pet peeve is this idea that that push carts or trolleys are are muni golf that they're not. They're not worthy of the top clubs in the country, and and, and that I think that it all kind of goes to this erosion of, of of the caddies and and walking and and you know pushing your cart, carrying your bag, those types of things. So, I think there'd have to be a concerted effort to 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 be more to be more health conscious and exercise and really utilize the fact that carrying your bag is like a workout, and that's what the only workout I get these days is carrying my bag. I've got a cool little McKinsey bag. I just I'm not almost always the only one walking whenever everyone else is on a golf cart. And I'm like, well, this is my exercise. Yeah. So. I was really tired uh, on my recent trip with uh, Zach through Northern California. And, I, you know, I'd played an exorbitant amount of golf over a few days. And, <laughs> and Zach's like, you right. should just, you should just ride. We were at Monterey Peninsula Club. And I was like, you know, man, I don't think I can. I, it was <laughs> my uh my listeners would be upset with me if i if i if they saw yeah, me riding well, on a seaside course on a 70 degree day here's a model that i think needs to be thought of more is is a golf cart with four four or five uh 
places for carts where the where someone drives it. Yeah. And 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 that way, you know, someone's not, you know, you're not using two or four caddies, and you got a golf cart, and then someone's driving it where they're supposed to drive it. That's part of the reason why golf carts you get in trouble is because you just can't control where where people drive carts these days. They just drive them everywhere. So uh, that's where you have these issues. But I played a little par three course here. You know, they funneled us right into a, into a golf cart on a par three course. <laughs> and, and it was a four seater and my buddies were like, yeah, four seater. And they, we put all of our bags on there and I walked, uh, alongside of them. And, and so I think we, we do have an opportunity to kind of look outside the box. I think if there's more of a concerted effort to do something other than just ram everybody in carts, I think, I think there's things that can work. Last overrated, underrated uh music on the golf course oh man totally underrated i i i think i've never been I, I you would never have thought that that would have brought up so many passionate feelings about whether or not loud music on a course is is, is good or bad i you know to me uh i love it you know i of course it's a little harder to be having music on the course when you don't have a golf cart you know someone carrying a, a speaker along with you is a little bit different and you're kind of muffled in your bag but uh, headphones. I, I I think it's an integral part, and I think it's just a matter of time before we start to see it everywhere. Yeah. I. I um, what do you listen to? What music do I listen to? Yeah. What What's your, uh, What would be your go to? You know, you know the, I'm I, I'm still on the Twenty One Pilots recently, uh, so I, I can't get off of that. But I'm an '80s guy, so I go back to U2. I go back to uh, Midnight Oil. That's another good one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, chili peppers. What's that? Just chili peppers. Your time. Uh, chili peppers. They're yeah, coming up, yeah, right? Yeah, I like chili peppers. That that's not a it's not a go to, but it's definitely in my music list. Uh-huh. That's uh the the eighties. Yeah, I I I've always wanted. I I got to do an architect comparison to bands from like the golden age. Well, yeah. you know, one of the things that I that I think is so. I was at a a conference through Marriott Golf the other day. And so I was a speaker on one of their panels and every time one of their guys got up on stage, they, they picked their own entrance music. And I'm like, that is awesome. And it's like, we don't have, we have so many opportunities to make our, to, to create our own entrance music. Why don't we do that? So I was thinking the next interview that I have, I was going to, I was going to try to figure out how to play in, you know, enter Sandman from Metallica or something like that as my entrance music. The PGA tour is doing it at Zurich now. There it is. Yeah. See? becoming more and more prevalent so (laughs) hey andy thanks so much for your uh time it's been a good talk and we'll have to have you on again all right anytime man you i I enjoy what you're doing you're doing it the right way i think and i'm honored to be a part of it so thanks again you've been listening to the fried egg podcast we do the digging for you 